0: Uh, Today's scripture is from Matthew 24, 1 through 14. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, When will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come.
1: All right, good morning. How is everyone? Good, 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 good. We're talking talking some eschatology this week, and next week, and probably the week after, because there's a lot there. Um, And... uh, just i 'll just put it out there, like most of you come from like different we 're sort of an interdenominational church, a lot of you from different backgrounds and uh and uh, if you grew up like me, I grew up like in the in the, the Baptist Church, like Southern Baptist Church, we were like the only Southern Baptist Church in Los Angeles, the only one um, and we found it um, and eschatology and time stuff was incredibly important to us, and that's like it's like what we talked about all the time. And uh, so I know this can be like an important subject to a lot of people. Um, I no longer believe a lot of the things that I did growing up. I'll just put that out there. And, uh, and we're going to talk about some of those things, and a lot of you are going to just disagree. I just want you to know that's totally fine. You can just say, interesting, Tommy's wrong. And that's fine. <laughs> I'm cool with that. Um, totally fine. But um, am not going to teach things I don't believe, and I'm going to... Um, try to sort of lay out uh, a first century interpretation of all of this, not a 21st century interpretation of all of this. Uh, And so I'll say some things you may not have heard, unless you grew up um, Anabaptist, maybe Anglican, uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, Other than that, this will be a fun journey through a text. This week we're going to talk, okay, let's just, today we're going to talk about, um, uh, you know, What's called the coming of Christ, the word Perusia is there. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the Jewish idea of the end of the age. Um, And then uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the destruction of the temple, why, Um, and what does it mean. And then next week, next week, or the week after, probably mostly next week, we're going to talk about the rapture. You have to. Um, We're going to talk about, like, how was that invented? Like, where'd that idea come from? Who believed it? And should we believe it? Um... We'll get there, and we'll talk about that, um, and I'll make a little references here and there, and so this will be a fun few weeks. The inbox will be, the inbox will be kicking. All right, let's, um, let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask for your, for your, your peace upon all of us, your shalom, that it would... Um, Yet for now, we would be present here with each other, that we would be unified and we would be your people gathering together as your body. I pray that your spirit would be present um, with us, teaching us, exhorting us, encouraging us, making us, um, giving us uh, a vision of, of what is possible um, and what you plan to do and, and uh, how amazing the world can be and uh, help us to be inspired by it and uh, give us courage and give us... Um, give us foresight, give us a presence in this world today. Speak through me, allow me to remember the things that I've taught, and uh, we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start right here. Here we go. Uh, Matthew 24, 1, Jesus left the temple and was walking away uh, when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Now, um, remember last week, Jesus gave the Pharisees, they had been talking, they've been standing in the middle of the temple talking for a very long time now, like for the last, for the last like two months in our time, right? Like it was a few hours in their time, but we've been here for two months and Jesus has been talking to them in the temple, debating. And finally, Jesus gives them the final warning. He says, you know your history. You know how many times you have failed to be the people of God, failed to be the presence of goodness and love in this world, failed to, to care for those who are not one of you, failed to pour yourselves out for the world around you and to, when people look at you, they no longer see the presence of God. They no longer see what God is like. They see what other kings are like. You're violent, you're bitter, you're legalistic. You are not the people that you were supposed to be. And every time this happens and you could take your eyes off of what is the main thing, things go really bad for you. You lose your land. You end up oppressed by these people, by your enemies. You end up with your temple being destroyed and your city being taken over, overrun. And I want you to know it's about to happen again you have lost the plot of the whole thing of what it means to be God's people. And he tells them all this and he says he ends it with and I would love like a mother hen to gather you under my wings like my chicks and and as the house is burning down I will die in the fire so that you can live. I would love to do that for you but you will not let me. Okay? And then he turns around and he walks out of the temple. Now, as he's walking out of the temple, he's exiting the main gates. And he's walking out and his disciples have been there with him. And they come running after him. And they go up to him. Um, and they say, uh, they say look around. Look at, look at this building. Look how big it is. Look at the stones. Look how huge they are. Like this, what you're saying is impossible. This temple will not be destroyed. And Jesus looks at them and he says, do you see all these things? He asked, surely I tell you, not one stone here will be left on the other. Every one will be thrown down. He says, it's not, you think, you think it's too big to fail. It's not. This thing will collapse. It is not what it was supposed to be. It is not a place of healing and goodness and restoration and reconciliation. It is not the presence of God doing the work of God in this world. It is oppressing people. It is, it is harmful. It is not teaching their people to be the presence of God in this world. Therefore, it is now useless. It will be thrown down and it will be replaced. Um, and then uh, we get into this, this question because they're shocked at this. So they go and they sit down on the Mount of Olives, which is across the valley. And you can look down upon the city and you can see the city from there. And the disciples look at Jesus. Uh, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, they, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? End of the end of the age. Now, um, again, I grew up, Southern Baptist, and these two phrases, uh, the sign of your coming and the end of the age, for us, that was a future thing that was all about, um, when is God really going to come and snatch his people away and then rain down, like, torment on humanity before destroying the whole thing? Um, this was, this was the idea that we had, um... And I spent some time at Liberty University, and we had a, a, a guest speaker named Tim LaHaye who's written extensively novels on these subjects. Um, and uh, this is the idea that, that he's proposing. And, that, and that there's a particular idea that's taught in the, in, the, in the Baptist church that I grew up in. It's called dispensationalism. Um, and it, it, it basically takes all the, 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 the sayings of Christ here in this entire chapter, and it makes them about future events which are coming in our future. Um, What Matthew is doing in in Matthew 24, it reads different than what's called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, It reads different than those. Matthew has taken all of the sayings of Christ about the end and has compiled them all into one chapter and has laid them all out for us to all read them all together for his own people, for a reason. And we'll get to that a little later. Um, But basically, when I was growing up, one of the most effective ways of evangelism is to scare you to death. Um, and if they can trigger fear in you, then they can offer you the solution, which is Jesus. And then you will, like, you're so scared that you'll pray any prayer and, and order your life around anything. And one of the ways that they would use this, there was these movies. Um, here, here's a movie poster for one of them uh, in the 70s. Um, I grew up in, I was born in 1980. The movie was called A Thief in the Night. Any of you heard of this movie? Okay. Now, there was part two, which is called A Distant Thunder and the 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 little hat the little motto was a sequel to a thief in the night that was their marketing that was their marketing ploy um anyways the whole idea of this thing it's a really really dope poster by the way but um it's basically it's, it's taking like everything Jesus said and making it happen in their day. And there's like a, the girl wakes up. There's an alarm clock going off. And the alarm goes off. And the, the clock radio turns on. And there's this announcer talking about how half the world has disappeared. And there's plane crashes and all kinds of stuff. And she hears her husband shaving in the bathroom with his, with his 70s razor. And she walks in there. And the razor's in the sink. And he's gone. And she goes like, ah! she like screams. And the rest of the movie is her running from these like brown shirts. Like running from them while all the other Christians who are apparently not Christian enough for getting rounded up and killed um terrifying I'm like eight (laughs) and uh and you might think that like well your generation was a little over the top I don't know that it was our generation (laughs) and this is the good one this isn't that Kurt Cameron stuff all right like it'd be a good time to steal the Declaration of Independence though when half the population is gone (laughs) Um, but like, this is a major theme in evangelicalism. Um, evangelicals by and large interpret the Bible like, and especially Matthew 24, they look at the world around them and they ask the same questions the disciples are asking. What is the sign of your coming? Um, and they say wars and rumors of wars and they're reading all this and they're like, well, there's wars, there's wars going on right now. There is... There's rumors of wars, too, that these wars are actually happening. And there is famine. There is death. There is persecution. Um, that means Jesus is about to come back now. And this is how we sort of talk about it. And you, we tend to act as if the Bible was written to us. 21st century, 2019, watermark church in Tampa. It's written to us, but it wasn't. It was written to people in the first century. Matthew wrote it to his church for things they were going through, to help them through it. Okay. So um, something very important to understand is there's, well, there's really, there's really sort of, sort of two things here that, that are really important. Um, if we look at this passage, what, what they just said, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So I, first I want to look at your coming and then we're going to look at the end of the age. We're going to interpret these things in a first century Jewish mindset and maybe look at them a little differently. Okay. And I'll, I'm going to give you a lot of information this morning, and I'm sorry, but it'll be podcasted, and go back and listen to it, take notes, whatever you want, write fast. Um, So um, if you were a Roman citizen in the first century, um, and you were a citizen of the Roman Empire, and maybe you lived in a city where Rome is back here, your city is way over here. Uh, Maybe it's Philippi or Corinth. And you're here, and you hear that the Roman emperor is going to come to your city to visit. This would be your greatest dream, because it's not like today where, you know, you can turn on the television, open a newspaper, turn on a website, you could see your president, you can hear him talking, your leader, whatever. Um, In that day, you couldn't. You just had little coins with his image on it. And you only heard about what they were like. You've never heard them speak. You don't know how tall they are. Um, But you, you don't know what they look like, but... You revere them because you've heard stories about their might and their greatness, and you believe you have faith and allegiance, same idea, in this person, that through them world peace will come, through the power of the sword, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Like This is how goodness and shalom will come through the world. And so if your emperor were to visit your city, this would be a huge day. Um, And it would be important, not not just because you yourself would long for the day when he would visit, um, but you would also, so you would see him for yourself, but also equally important, all your neighbors would also realize that he really was the world's Lord and master, and they would see him the way you see him. It's sort of like evangelizing, like we have a king, he's coming and he's good, you're going to see, just wait, you're going to see how powerful and wonderful they are. Um, The word for this, for the coming of the emperor... The word that they would use is this very simple word. is parousia. Everyone say parousia. Parousia. Okay. Uh, Parousia is a word basically translated. It means appearing or presence or revealing. Um, It's not just just that the king is appearing before you. um, There's also other ways to use it. The same word is often used to describe what happens when a god or a goddess did something dramatic. If you had uh, back pain, and you went to the temple, um, the, the god Apollo, and you, you paid and you worshiped the god Apollo, you burned incense, whatever, made a sacrifice on the altar, um, and you spent time in prayer, um, and you were healed, miraculously healed. Um, that would be a parousia. That would be a sudden appearing display of the god, revealing the god's power, and showing you, um, I'm present. I'm here. I am your God. This is how they would use this word. So not only is it physical presence, it is an entering, an appearing of the king. It is also a display of power of the king. Um, This is the word that is used in this verse. What will be the sign of your coming? What will be your parousia? Um, What will be the sign of your coming? Now, the reason this is important is because there's one fact which should um, help you interpret like Jesus, talk, speak, Jesus' sayings about the future. He's not talking about the second coming. He's literally talking about his first coming. Okay, And you might say, what are you talking about? He's already there. He's not there as king. Jesus is there as a human being, as a, as a rabbi with disciples, as a teacher, as, as a secret Messiah. The people don't know. They haven't realized. But Jesus is there, but he is not yet king. When King David... Um, his great appearing, he was already there. He had his whole family, but one day he appears as king. Okay, that is what this is about. This is about the disciples asking Jesus, when are you gonna take your throne? When are you going to appear as king? When when are they gonna see what we see in you? When is it gonna happen? When's your great parousia, your great unveiling? What will it look like? How will we know when this is taking place? When you are becoming king? Okay, so for them, he was already king. He was already, but he was not yet king of the world. And this is what they're talking about. Jesus doesn't at all talk about his second coming. The disciples do later, apostles do. Paul writes about it a little bit. But Jesus is not talking about that, okay, which, which is very important for interpreting the next passage, which we're going to get to next, next week. Um but um, I'm going to I'm I'm leave that there. This is about Jesus' first coming, revealing him as king. The second thing that is said here is, um, so what will be the sign of your coming, your parousia, the appearing, uh, and of the end of the age? So end of the age is a very Jewish idea, incredibly important idea to understand what the Jews were talking about when they spoke this way. Um, there's a professor named Dr. Gordon Fee. He's, he's taught for decades at, I believe it's Regent College in, in Vancouver. He's a PhD in... Um, in, uh, in theology, um, and he's been teaching for a, a long time. He hasn't, been, he hasn't been a pastor for a very, very, like, decades and decades. And one of his students, in a book I'm reading, one of his students asked him, um, if you were to go back and become a pastor again now, what would you do? How would that look? What would you focus on? Here was his answer, and I think it's very important. He said, no matter how long it might take, I would set about with a single passion to help a local body of believers recapture the New Testament church's understanding of itself as an eschatological community. He thinks it's incredibly important that we understand ourselves as an eschatological community. Now, here's what this means. It's just a big fancy word. Here's what it means. Eschatology has to do um, with the Jewish expectation that things were going to change. They believed that they were in what's called the present age, here. Uh, they believe they were in what's called the present age. And they believe that this, this age was awful. The world was not as it should be. They were under the thumb of an oppressive government, but they knew they were supposed to be the people whose king f- who would, would, through them, bring salvation and restoration and shalom and peace to the whole world. But it was incredibly hard right now and things were very bad, and they were suffering constantly. But they believed that God alone would act decisively and would do something that would usher in a new time, the kingdom of God, that would make everything right and and put everything back in order the way it is supposed to be so that we, as humanity, can live at peace with each other and the world and creation and with God. And they believed there would be one particular moment called the day of the Lord, which would be the end of the present age. You'll read about that in the Old Testament, this present age. And you'll read about the age to come a lot in the New Testament. And and in both passages, um, in both old and new, the age to come is the kingdom of God. That's when things are set right. This was the Jewish expectation. So when the disciples are asking the question and they are saying, um, what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? This is what they're asking. When are you going to come and become king and set things right? When is that going to happen? That is the big question. That is what Jesus is talking about here. It is not necessarily something that has to do with us fully. We'll talk about our part in this thing later. Um, This is about them and what they were living in, okay? Now, um, the early Christians started off, they were all Jewish. All early Christians were Jewish people. The second generation of Christians um, became, where it was a melding of the Gentiles and the Jews a little later on, even Jesus said first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Um, so, the Christians, uh, the early Christians who came to Christ, believed this. This is how they viewed all things. However, through the things they had learned from Jesus, from what they had seen with his teachings, his interpretations of the law, his ability to follow the Spirit, his, uh, his miraculous deeds that he did, his ability to bring restoration and forgiveness, to make people whole, to forgive sins, and his death and his resurrection. His being totally committed to God through all of this revealed to them things that they did not believe before. And it sort of, as it did, as it did in many different areas, it edited their Jewish beliefs and expanded it. And here's what they came to see this end thing, this day of the Lord, expanded into an age, not just a moment. It expanded into a time. So we had the present age before. Um, and then you had the beginning of what's called between the times. And at some point that this would be consummated and bring in the, the age to come. So the great day of the Lord was the day, was, was this, was not just one day. It was this big time period. And it, they said, they believed that it started with resurrection and it will end with resurrection. It started with the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits. And they believed it will end when God's people are resurrected again. Um, this is how... When you read the Bible, this is what you should see. This is how Paul reads the Bible. This is how they understood it. Um, We should do everything we can not to bring modern ideas into the text. When you're going to read it, you comprehend it as they would. And then you say, well, what does this mean for us? Okay? You don't go the other direction. You you bring it into our day. Okay? So this is what they believed. Um, And they believed the church was here in the between times, between the, the beginning and the end. And so Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he talks about us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And there's another place where Paul writes um, in Second Corinthians five fourteen when he tells them that Christ's death and resurrection have already passed sentence on the present age. So he says, Christ's resurrection has passed sentence on that is over and we are now in a new time. Okay. And this is what they believe. So When Dr. Gordon Fee talks about how he would would do everything he can to wake the church up to the fact that we are an eschatological community, here's what he's saying. We are a people built for the kingdom of God in the future when the world will be set right and human beings will live a certain way. And we exist as a people there, here, now. We are already part of the kingdom of God, but we are not yet in the full kingdom of God. And here's what this means. And here's how the early Christians interpreted this. And here's how they lived. The simple ethic of Christianity. It was was very simple. It was, if it's not going to exist in the kingdom of God, I'm not going to prop it up here. I'm not going to take part in it here. I'm not going to fight for its existence now. If it will exist in the kingdom of God, I will fight for it here. And I will live for it now. This is how the Christians lived. And all of this had to do with Christ, they lived a cruciform life, that they believed that the way the kingdom of God will come into the world, just as it did, just as that age ended and this age started with the death and suffering of Christ, bringing about his resurrection, they believed the next age would come about because of the body of Christ living a cruciform life, a life that is willing to suffer and pour ourselves out to give birth to a new age. And that's an important idea, the idea of birth, this is how the early church talks about this, and if you read Matthew twenty-four, um, Jesus freely draws on the idea of giving birth. Now, let me show you a picture. Ready to go on? Here we go. Okay, this is my son, Priest and Peak Phillips III, in two thousand nine, um, and birth is a really interesting thing. Okay, um, it is. It's it's unknown. You, you think you know how things will go. You've been taught, you've read the books, what to expect when you're expecting, all that. You, you've, you've done all this and you've read and you've, you've heard people talk about their birth stories and, and you go to these classes and you learn all about birth and how this is gonna go. But here's the thing. Um, with our first child, we had so many questions about how this is gonna go. And the fact is that every single birth is, is completely different. And it's, and it's all a mystery about where things will end up. All that you can do is believe that this is the only way and though it may be hard, this is the only way that this new life and this new way of being will enter into the world. And so you go into this hoping it will be relatively easy. People tell you their stories. Oh, I felt a little pain. And then 15 minutes later, I gave birth at the hospital. And you're like, see, that's, maybe it'll be like that. It wasn't. Um, <laughs> and so it started off, you know, we have this plan. You have a plan for like a birthing center. We go to this birthing center. We were, we were like we were like feeling, feeling hippie. You know what I mean? Like we got a birthing center, and we're like, yeah, we're going to walk through these gardens and, and do labor together. And, and, and it's going to be amazing. And we literally did this. The labor started. We go to the birthing center, and we're doing the breathing exercises and everything. And 52 hours later, there's no baby yet. And, and, and my wife is in excruciating pain, and we haven't slept, and things aren't going well. But you had expectations of what it was going to be like, but nope, you don't get that. And then eventually, my wife went into shock, and we got rushed to the hospital where we had a C-section. Nothing we planned on. Now, if you're pregnant right now, I'm sure it'll be easier. <laughs> sure, it will. Um, and then we had two more children after that. Both of them relatively normal births, like we had heard, born naturally and, and normal. Easier for me than for her, but um, obviously. Um, <laughs> But like, this is the perfect metaphor. Imagine in the first century thinking of, of childbirth in, in, in this way. It was a terrifying time. Medicine was really poor. A, lot of, a large percentage of women died in childbirth. People still die, women still die in childbirth today. Back then it was, it was way worse. And so to speak in this way, it's apt. It, it's like... It's like some of you will die. All of you will suffer. But this is the only way forward. And Jesus is sort of giving them a glimpse, and then he's going to display it to them, what this looks like. To believe in something and care about something so much that you are willing to walk through anything to receive it. And to hold it in your arms. And this is all we are given is metaphors, by the way. Anyone who tells you, I know exactly what's going to happen. It's going to be this and this and this and this. And and, and yesterday on the news, when this thing happened and they shook hands, that meant this and that's right here spoken about in the book of Daniel. Like anyone talking to you like that, like they've got it all laid out. First off, check your wallet. Okay. (laughs) They're trying to sell you something. They are benefiting from this. It's either a book or it's a bad movie or it's like like a, a political campaign thing. They're, they're trying to scare you and, and get something from you. All we are given is metaphors and encouragement and hope that when it gets hard, this is the only way forward. It, the kingdom of God costs you. It's disruptive. It does. Um, and so... We are only given metaphors. We're given the picture of, of childbirth. We're given the picture of a marriage of a king's son, of a tree sprouting new leaves, of a, of a mustard seed growing into this massive thing unexpectedly. Like, We're given all these images of a, of a person who finds a treasure in a field and does everything, sells everything to buy this whole field to own the treasure and to have it and possess it um, because the kingdom of God is different. But all we're given is metaphors and hope and a plea to have allegiance and faith in your new king. And so when we read the passage, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, we are in a very simple mindset, a first century mindset. How is this gonna happen? How is Jesus going to become king? How will this be revealed? How in the world are you gonna get everyone to see the way? How are you gonna get every, 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 every nation in the world? How, how are there gonna be people there who, who open their eyes and see the path of Jesus is the right path? Huh? And so, Jesus, from verse 4 to verse 15, I'm not going to read it all today. We've already read it. He says lots of things. I'm going to pull out um, little, little pieces of it. Um, in verse 5, 6, 7, and 8, there are specific things that he names, um, but they're vague, but they're relatively specific. Um, Matthew's audience would have recognized them instantly because they happened in their day. Um, Many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Messiah. And will deceive many. Um, this happened. I can name about five or six different Messiahs that, were, that, were, that con- were contemporaries of Jesus. Who stepped up and said, I should be Israel's new king. That's what Messiah means. Um, and here's why. And they make their case and an argument. They gather an army and every single time they're slaughtered by the Romans. Just like Jesus was. Okay. Many will come claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Um, verse 6, he says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Um, Yes, absolutely. Like things were getting really bad around the time, um, shortly after the death of Christ. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, Verse 7 and 8, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. These happen, all these are the beginning of the birth pains. And then it says, then after that, so these are the birth pains. He says, after this, he has a big list of things um, that will happen because there are people following another king. When the early Christians stood up and they said, Jesus is Lord... What they were saying was Caesar is not Lord. This was treason. This is high treason. This caused all the Christians to be rounded up and slaughtered by Nero, um, by Domitian. We're going to talk about that as well. Um, it's caused really bad things. So I want you to imagine Matthew. He's becoming an old man. And let's, let's, be, let's be like moderate and just argue that, that the book of Matthew uh, was written at least in the year 90 A.D. Okay, most scholars would at least agree with this date. I would push it a little earlier, actually. Um, But let's just say that Matthew was written in 90 AD. Um, That means Matthew's church. It means Matthew's an old man, first off, and he's getting old, and he's writing this book for his church so they can carry on his work after he dies. It also means his people have seen a lot of stuff. Um, It means that they have... um, Oh, yeah, I didn't get to the second part. Um, It means they've already undergone persecution. Um, They've seen a lot of history. Jesus mentioned some of this. You will be handed over and be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations. Many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony uh, to all nations. And then the end will come. Okay. These, Matthew's audience, who is hearing this, as Matthew has written it, was present when the Romans stormed into Jerusalem and burnt the temple to the ground and slaughtered the Jewish people. They, they saw it. They know what Jesus is talking about. And then they flee, and they, they flee to Herod's, um, his fortress, Masada, on top of a mountain. And they take it over, and they're living there while the Romans build a ramp that goes all the way up to the side. And while they're there, they're starving to death. There's famine. They're terrified, and they end up all committing suicide by the time the Romans get there. And it's the end. The things Jesus is talking about, Matthew's audience is intimately familiar with it. Okay? They have seen these things. Not only that, the Christians were also undergoing incredible persecution at the very time that this book is being written. So this happened about 20 years earlier. When this book is being written, let's just say 90 AD, at the same time, there is an emperor on the throne. His name is Domitian. And Domitian is an egomaniac, and he hates the Christians who are declaring that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And he rounds up all the pastors, because he's going to put an end to this movement. He's going to finish what Nero started. And he gathers all the pastors, and he exiles them all to an island of Patmos. Um, One of the apostles is there. His name is John. And he's hiding out in a cave on the island of Patmos. And he's not allowed to leave. But John is gathering, and he's writing letters. Because he knows there's at least seven churches in the Roman Empire that have not been declaring Jesus as Lord, that have been declaring, well, Jesus is Lord of this. We believe Jesus, but also Caesar is Lord. You know what I mean? Like, and so it's this melding of two kingdoms. And John writes to them, all these seven churches, and he calls his book the Revelation of John to the church. We just call it the book of Revelation. And it's this fanciful book written in Jewish apocalyptic language, that rebukes these churches for not standing up. He says, the fact fact that this empire loves you means that you have not been declaring that Jesus is Lord because if they understood what our plan is as Christians to usher in a new order of all things under Jesus, um, a world living at peace and shalom, settled on love, not built on the backs of military might, but on service of other human beings and loving and pouring ourselves out for them. If they knew this, they would absolutely be threatened by it. But you guys seem to be doing just dandy. And so I have words for you. And he writes this book of Revelation. We're going to talk about that a little more next week. It's a the book of Revelation is a political commentary on the year 90 A.D. in the Roman Empire. That's what that book is. That's what it is. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little more. Um, but these Christians are being chased and persecuted. Nero, two emperors before him, caught Christians and wrapped them in pitch and put them on poles and lit them on fire to so have his parties. The Christians were being slaughtered. So when Jesus says this, they're like, yeah. When Matthew is saying, repeating to them the words of Christ, they're like, he was right. He knows, he knows. Because when you declare Jesus as Lord, it's disruptive to everyone else who thinks they know the way forward and they are threatened by it. But so few churches really live as if Jesus is Lord that we have almost no impact anymore. But a church that actually believes that the way of Jesus is is the way forward, the foolishness of Christ the path of the cross rather than the sword. The church that actually believes this will disrupt. It it will bring equality like you have never seen. And it's a threat to those in power. Always has been. So, this is what they're talking about. This is Jesus' response. How will we know when you're becoming king? You'll know I'm becoming king in your midst, when the kings of the world start pushing back against you, that's how you'll know when I'm becoming king. Ouch. That's how you'll know. There are places in the world where Jesus is becoming king, and the kingdoms of the world are pushing back against him as hard as they can. And Christians are suffering and they're dying. According to Matthew, that is evidence that they understand it and that they're sold out to it. But in all of this, we must return to the very first question. Jesus, look at the temple, though. Why? Why Why can't we just use the temple? Why is it going to be knocked down? Why is it going to be destroyed? To answer this question, and this is where I'm going to end it today, to answer this question, you have to go all the way back to Sinai, to Mount Sinai. Let me explain this to you real fast. Um, the answer is very simple. When the people came to Sinai, only Moses was allowed to ascend to the top of the mountain. The rest of the people had to stay relatively close to the ground. They could ascend a little bit of the way, a little bit halfway, but they couldn't go to the top. Why? Because heaven was intersecting with earth in this place. It's the only place in the world that heaven and earth were coming together, and God was present with Moses it's a symbol of like, of like the Garden of Eden, like God and humanity together in one place and God giving Moses the commands. This is how you are to live as my people. This is how you are to live. Not just that. When you're living as my people, these things will be done naturally, okay? So um, this is where God communed with humanity, where he gave them the law, instructed them on how they are to live. Now, when the people, a little later, Um, were commanded to build a tabernacle, a mobile version of the temple. And eventually they had a temple after that. Um, It was the same idea, the tabernacle and the temple. Only the priest was allowed to fully enter into the center and the people weren't allowed to go very close to the center of all of it. Um, They could go no further than the courtyard. And the center of the temple and the the tabernacle was where God communed with humanity, where he forgave them for breaking the law, where he reiterated his covenant with them and assured them, I'm not going to abandon you, though you've abandoned me. I'm faithful to you. I'm with you. You don't need to worry about that. You just need to come back and trust that I'm still with you, that I still love you. I'm committed to you, okay? As we move forward, remember the the book of Ezekiel at Easter. um, Jesus, uh, God just disappears from the temple. He sees him leave. He says, for the last time you have not been my people, I'm leaving. And God leaves the temple. When Jesus enters um, into the world, Jesus is now the place where God and man come together. The angels call him Emmanuel. They call him God with us. So now Jesus is what the temple was, what the tabernacle was, what Sinai was, what Eden describes Jesus is this. is the presence of God and humanity together in one space the incarnation of God in the flesh. Um, Even John writes about this. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word there, the Greek word for made his dwelling is the word tabernacled. Like he he templed, he tabernacled with us. Like once again, the, the temple's gone mobile and it's with us, right? And Jesus in his life is doing all the things that the temple did. He's healing people. He's forgiving them. He's teaching them. He's present with them. He's... Um, sometimes people come to him and they're in pain and they're sick and they're, they're 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 dying and he or they're lame even and he just says your sins are forgiven and that's blasphemy because that's temple work only God can forgive sins in the temple and Jesus is like yeah you're getting it I am the temple okay we go a little farther and Jesus gathers after the resurrection he gathers his people together and he breathes on them and he says receive the spirit and then the church becomes the body of Christ the temple we the church now are the center of God's work. We are supposed to be the place where people are healed, where they are brought in and reconciled with, where they are restored, where they are are welcomed in as they are. And we, as Christ, lower ourselves and are willing to give up any rights, any privileges, any power that we have and, and, and get below them and wash their feet to lift them up to the same level. The church now does the work of the temple. And so Paul writes to the church in Corinth, a city filled with pagan temples everywhere. And the Christians don't have a temple. They never built one. The temple's gone. We don't need it anymore. Why? Because do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? This is not individual body. This is when you come together, you are the temple. It is a mobile temple. And it will fill the earth. And as you come together, the Spirit of God, like the temple, indwells us here and meets with us here and encourages us, convicts us, changes us. It takes all these different people from all these different walks of life and all these slightly different theologies and and brings us all together and makes us one people. This is what the church is. And so we don't need the temple anymore. We are the temple. And so what is the role of the church? Well, it's to build a big show and gather every Sunday. No, The, the role of the church is to heal people, bring healing into their lives, to free them from everything that enslaves them, drug abuse, debt, like what is it that enslaves you? Like to, to make them whole, to give them a family. The outsiders, the rejected, you bring them in, you are one of us. But they said, I don't care what they said, you are one of us. You are my brother, you are my sister. But we disagree, it's okay. I'm willing, I'm willing to humble myself to your level and bind myself to you. As my brother and my sister, we are a surrogate family in a world full of broken families. That is what we are. That is what the church is. Now, all of this begs the question, well, how will we know when Jesus really is becoming king amongst us? Because it'll disrupt our lives. It will disrupt our investment schemes. It'll disrupt our plans. It'll disrupt our our politics the ways that we think, it'll challenge us every single time. This is what the church is. We are an eschatological people, a future of people. We are from the future. (laughs) And we are here now to tell you what it's like. And how will you know? Well, we're gonna live it out. We're gonna live it out. We're gonna help pay each other's medical bills. And we're gonna help each other keep the lights on. And we're gonna make sure everybody's fed. And we're gonna make sure everyone feels at home and we're going to be a shoulder to cry on. And when people are suffering, we're going to suffer with them. And when it comes time to choose between like um, financial comfort and pouring ourselves out and declaring Jesus is Lord, we're going to do this thing. This is how it works. Let's take communion. Our communion service, you guys can go and take the elements and spread around the room. This is what communion is. It is the final picture of of, of what Christianity is when we come together. There's, a, there's, there's bread and there's wine. The body of Christ broken for us. The The... the The blood of Christ poured out for all of us. This is how salvation enters into the world. This is how Jesus brought it into the world, into the phase that we are in now. We are an eschatological people living, living in the end times, of course. They've been saying it since the beginning and it's all true. It's always been true. And so when you find your life being disrupted, nod your head and just say, "Yep." Jesus talked about this, that this would be difficult and it's okay. And the solace of the suffering of Christ will give me strength. And so our communion servers, you guys can come and gather around the room and, uh, and we'll spend some time in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask that you be present here with us, that you convict us and change us. I pray that we would be a people of the future who understand that like, we, we, we're, we shouldn't be spending time propping up things that will not exist in your kingdom. Instead, we should live in your kingdom already, even though it is not yet fully realized and help us to be a people Um, who are able to adequately reveal the kingdom of God in the world. I pray all of this in your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.